Hey everyone, this is Amon Kidwai, the manager of the Yukon blog. Just wanted to make a comment on protests going on around the country and calls for racial equality. Normally we don't touch on social issues very much here at the Yukon blog, uh, or even really the way they intersect with college sports. But clearly, seeing how much of Yukon athletics is empowered to speak out this is something that we should be aware of, should be acknowledging, and that I regret not covering a little bit more. I urge all of you to think about the humanity of the players who represent UConn and how they're more than just their on-field performance. And I hope we can all take time to learn more about each other's perspectives and be more accommodating to people of all backgrounds. Black Lives Matter, and this country needs to start acting like it. Thank you. Hello, Husky fans, and welcome to another episode of the Yukon Pod. This is Amon Kidwai. I'm here with Daniel Connolly and Dan Madigan. Pleasure to be joined by you guys. We've got a lot of great Yukon stuff on the agenda to discuss. Uh, first and foremost, folks, we have a tentative date for the opening of campus and potentially fall sports. Uh, Connolly, you want to give us the update on uh, that came from the UConn president? Sure. So today UConn released their tentative plan for reopening this fall, which is going to involve classes starting August 31st, which was the original plan date for classes to begin. But for students living on campus, they're going to come in two weeks before classes start. They're going to get tested and then they're going to have to quarantine in their dorms for two weeks. So um, there's some other factors with students going home at Thanksgiving break and then finishing the semester online, which is really only a week or two of classes and then finals week. So that's not drastically different. And then there's going to be different options with if you can take classes online in person, a combo. Um, they're going to have all different setups in classroom to enable social distancing. So it's their initial plan. It shows that they want students to be on campus this fall, which is obviously really important if there's going to be sports this fall, because without students on campus, there aren't going to be sports. So it's a good step, but it's still a very incomplete plan because it doesn't mention anything about students who are off campus, which is a pretty good portion of the population. And I know for a fact that, especially in the baseball team, but through a lot of the sports, a lot of athletes live off campus to some degree. So how they're going to navigate that is still a pretty big question to still be answered, but it's at least a really good start for UConn. I think their plan makes sense. And I mean, there's no perfect solution, but it's a start. And I think it makes it so that there's more optimism for fall sports starting on time or at least close to on time uh, once the calendar comes around. Yeah, I think it's a pretty interesting plan. I mean, like you said, Dan, none of us are epidemiologists here. Uh, it, it makes sense uh, on paper and, you know, we'll see how the chips fall going forward. Um, I think the residence hall plans are going to be really interesting to see how those um, kind of hash out because, you know, if anyone here listening is went to UConn and you're in a dorm like North or Northwest or McMahon, um, that's pretty tight quarters. So it'll be interesting to see what their plan is to kind of address that and uh, I'm sure they're still working and trying to think this through, but um, 
if this holds, like you said, fall sports should be on the way. And that's an exciting thing to think about, especially since, you know, we were robbed of a spring sports season really due to the virus. So uh, hopefully things continue to progress and trend in the right direction. And um, this online class situation after Thanksgiving is just precautionary and there's no uh, second spike, but only time will tell. Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen a number of other schools already release plans uh, like this or, or similar plans. Um, and it looks like some uh, sports teams have even resumed practice uh, in, in a few ways. So um, would be good for UConn to be able to get out there. Of course, hope, hope that it's happening as safely as possible. And um, yeah, I mean, just after, after seeing sports go away so suddenly um yeah I, I agree it is just nice to uh think that it may be on the horizon and that it it will not be um so so risky i think it's good there's another piece of news that came out um just on the fall sports uh and how they're setting up within divisions um and i think you know, that's something that'll definitely make the seasons really interesting for especially soccer and field hockey. But um, that's another good aspect of it, too. I think same thing, right? You, you saw that plan and you go, OK, well, sounds like they're really thinking about how to make fall sports happen. And so far, it looks like a reasonably feasible plan. Yeah, I think it's a really good plan and just in general kind of works out for the at least the soccer teams who are the big ones because field hockey might be a little tougher because they generally have a national schedule. So they might have a lot more to navigate in the non-conference portion, but for soccer, yeah, they don't really travel far for non-conference games to begin with. And all the teams they're playing are all in busing distance, pretty much like Washington DC and Georgetown's a little far on a bus, but realistically lower level college teams like in the America East, they make that trip on buses. So I think it'll be feasible for UConn. I think it keeps the athletes safer, just keeping them in the Northeast. And then realistically, like, does, I don't think anyone really cares about playing Butler or Creighton or even Marquette or DePaul in yeah, we're fine. fall sports. Like, I mean, men's soccer, Creighton has historically been a power, but like, I think just keeping it regional is the way that college sports at that level really should be in general, because it makes a lot more sense. And it's the teams are all kind of a lot more even in that sense. Whereas like a team in Florida or California can kind of train year round the Northeast, obviously are constricted. So I think it's a really good plan. And then the interesting thing is if this carries on to basketball, at least on the men's side, if it goes to East-West divisions, that means it's going to be all original Big East teams in the East. And again, I don't think UConn fans are going to be too upset about not playing the teams in the West, Creighton, Xavier, Butler, Marquette, DePaul. Like, if they're good, those are fine matchups. But UConn's back in the Big East it, precisely because of the East division of UConn-Providence, St. John, Seton Hall, and Villanova and Georgetown. So I think it's it just generally makes the sports more exciting and gives it more of a big East feel. Yeah, Dan, I, I think, you know, that would be pretty interesting if it does happen for basketball and, you know, we'll have to see how everything shakes out and if that actually happens or not, but I, I definitely wouldn't be against that. I think, 
you know, playing St. St. John, Seton Hall, Providence, Villanova, Georgetown could be fun from a basketball perspective, but uh, I know you're kind of the resident soccer expert here at the blog. So I think we should spend 15, 20 seconds just kind of talking through the East division. So UConn's in a division with Georgetown and St. John's, uh, two perennial powers, Seton Hall, Providence, another pretty good program in Villanova. So um, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but anything off the top of your head that kind of sticks out about any of those teams and uh, anything that any previous rivalries or things you want to rekindle? So for at least men's soccer, Georgetown won the national championship last year, which is pretty good. And then I think just in general, having Providence for all sports competitions that they have the same sports is just great because it's right down the road. And it's such a great regional rivalry that I think you can do a lot with. Um, St. John's is just a generally really good program. And then Seton Hall is pretty terrible in both the soccers and then Villanova really nothing special on either side either. And then women's soccer, Georgetown is also a really good program on that side. They're the team to beat. And then Providence and Villanova are, and UConn are probably going to be the teams competing behind them. And then St. John's is just kind of a mediocre program and have been that way for a while. And Seton Hall has been one of the worst programs in women's soccer the past few years. So I, nice. I think the women are in much better shape in the East than the men. Yeah, that makes sense. And I know I'm not going to pretend to be a field hockey expert, but uh, the big East for field hockey is totally different than all the other conferences. So uh, for example, Quinnipiac temple Liberty and old dominion are in the big East uh, among some of the other schools, but UConn's division is Providence, Quinnipiac and temple. Um, I know Quinnipiac kind of been a program on the rise over the past few years. Uh, old dominion is not in their division and they're, usually one of the better programs in the conference. So like you said, Dan, they kind of play a national schedule anyways. They're still going to be one of the you know top teams in the country, regardless of what their conference play looks like. But um, just something to keep an eye on because you know, Nancy Stevens is always at the top of her game. So not really worried about how she's going to handle this weird season. Field hockey hasn't lost a conference game since 2013 either. So I don't think you can cut it any way you want. They're not going to lose. Yeah, they've. It's been awesome that they've been still just racking up Big East titles, um, even while the rest of UConn wasn't in the league. So another uh, unfortunate outcome, however, of the coronavirus pandemic is that budgets are now that much tighter for a lot of universities, for a lot of states, uh, and and ultimately what that means is for a lot of schools' athletic departments. Um, and as any of our readers probably know, uh, UConn has had some pre-existing conditions um, budget-wise uh, even before the pandemic. And uh, now that their financial situation is a little less stable, um, may be in a position where it needs to cut sports. Uh, Mike Anthony had an article towards the end of May just kind of highlighting the, the financial situation that UConn's in, uh, quoting some, some senior uh, members of leadership in the board of trustees that uh, deep cuts need to be made to the athletic department budget. And, um, you know, it'd be hard to believe that cutting sports might not be part of that uh, solution for them. We recently saw that UConn golf was able to raise 500K uh, in the interest of keeping that program alive. Um, we will see if that works, 
there is a um, budgeting workshop on June 12th, after which we might hear something, uh, and then a board of trustees meeting scheduled for the 24th. So that's when uh, we might start to hear things and when uh, the news will be finalized. But yeah, guys have thoughts on what may, what may be if UConn ends up uh, making cuts to sports. Yeah. I think, you know, obviously you don't want to see student athletes lose their position at UConn and, and, you know, have to transfer somewhere else. But UConn does have 24 scholarship sports. Um, I believe most schools have around like 15 or 16, except for like the big, big power five programs, which uh, UConn doesn't, isn't necessarily in that realm anymore uh, from a budget perspective anyways. I think we'll have a clearer picture after June 12th, obviously once that proposal is submitted. Um, but yeah, it's obviously seems like UConn golf either heard rumors or rumblings or just had an idea that they're on the list it does make sense they don't play on campus they probably have to pay greens fees they play at the foxwoods golf course i believe um so good for them that they raised five hundred thousand dollars hopefully in a perfect world um no sports end up getting cut but i wouldn't be surprised if there's at least two or three that that end up being axed and and hopefully or probably not hopefully uh, a few more than that yeah, it's just tough because, as you mentioned, Matt, again, you kind of have so many more sports than their peers, and there's just some that really don't make a ton of sense for schools in the Northeast, like golf, like tennis, and it it just kind of feels inevitable that something's going to end up going because I imagine even in a perfect world where there's no national or worldwide pandemic going on that Benedict is probably looking at the budget and thinking about cutting sports one way or another regardless of the health of the world so I think it's inevitable that something gets cut and and the number I'm not going to put a guess on but just with the way it is I don't see how as amazing and impressive as it is I'm not saying this as I want golf to get cut but just, I don't know if $500,000 can save a golf program that probably has a pretty large budget for a sport of its size, just with the amount of travel they have to do, the equipment, the greens fees, as you said. So that tennis has a ton of travel too. And when you can't really play those sports year round and you don't have something on campus that you can work with year round, I just think it kind of becomes tough to justify. And when you look at a long-term savings that it just might not be worth it to continue but hopefully they can find a solution that involves not cutting sports because I mean it's easy to say oh the athletes can just transfer somewhere else but if you spend three years at a school and you have one year left and you're about to graduate and all your friends are at UConn and you have to decide between playing maybe one more year of your sport or staying at the school that you wanted to come to and has become a home then just it it's very tough to have to imagine being put in that scenario. So you really just have to hope that solutions are found without cutting sports. Yeah. And Dan, some of these people are being robbed of two seasons that could be robbed of two seasons if they were a springboard athlete and had their season canceled due to the pandemic kind of coming on and then getting hit with budget cuts later on, which I'm not sure if it'll happen immediately, but I imagine it will happen as soon as it's possible. Um, so I agree. Hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully they don't cut any sports, but 
uh, given the financial situation. We've talked about, you know, the deficit for the athletic department at length, and it's certainly going to get better with the move to the Big East, football independence, all that, but um, it's still a rather large deficit, and they definitely are going to use this opportunity to kind of reduce costs uh, because of the pandemic. They'll definitely take advantage of that. Yeah, and I think that's what, you know, looking at some of the other schools where this has happened, where there have been sports cuts, um, Cincinnati dropped soccer, men's soccer, I believe, uh, Kent State cut some sports. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of did seem, I mean, I don't want to speak to, about all of them, but in a, with a blanket statement, but it did seem like in some cases it was an athletic director maybe doing something they, they, they kind of wanted to do anyway. Um, and with UConn, you know, it's it, the financial situation cannot be, uh, we cannot s- emphasize enough how tough the, the current financial situation already was for UConn. And so the likelihood of sports being cut, yeah, just to agree with you, it does seem really, really high, but um, we'll just have to make sure to look closely that it was, you know, sports that made sense uh as it were rather than um you know just kind of cuts that that will be beneficial to have off the ledger so even if the sport is not cut there are um of course impacts uh to the team for different various husky teams of the pandemic um you know anyone who had their season interrupted or not didn't have didn't end up playing it last spring um and then what the situation is going to be this fall is is already looking like some teams are impacted and uh, some other teams might be, even if, uh, again, if they're probably not going to be cut. So, uh, Dan, uh, the hockey team did end up getting impacted by it pretty seriously, I would say, in terms of the roster makeup. Right. They lost Ruslan Asakov to a pro contract in Europe. And in a perfect world, he wanted to stay at UConn. UConn wanted him to stay at UConn. And the Islanders who drafted him in the second round a couple of years back wanted him to stay at UConn for another year. But they didn't really want to get into why he left. But it was just mentioned as a situation with his family brought on because of the coronavirus. And um, he needed to go play professionally so he had to leave go sign a pro contract and start making money and it just sucks for UConn because they had really really high hopes for him he had a bit of a disappointing year this past year but you spend five minutes watching UConn play and you can just see the talent that oozes out of him he's got Hobie Baker type potential which is something I've talked about with people in the program who have agreed with me on that and he definitely was going to be a big part of the program going forward next season. So it's just disappointing that a talent like that at UConn had to leave for factors out of UConn's control, out of his own control. And that without all this, he would still be at UConn, but they are kind of built to handle it because they have a pretty strong group of forwards coming in. They've got two elite forwards, Nick Capone, and then Artem Schlein, who played at the same prep school as guys like Sidney Crosby and Nate McKinnon. So two really, really highly touted prospects coming in. They've got a really strong group of forwards otherwise, and then they are 
looking to maybe bring in someone else to replace Ruslan. So it's not a death knell. They're still going to be really good next year, but it just sucks to have to lose someone like that due to those types of circumstances. And we got a lot of fun goals from him too, right? He had some, some real highlight reel uh, goals in his time at UConn. Yeah, he just did things with the puck that you don't really see at the collegiate level. He had just amaz- an amazing ability to handle the puck. And sometimes his flair for the dramatic uh, was a little too much instead of him just making the easy play. But yeah, I just remember, especially his freshman year, me watching him make a play at, on the ice and turning to the other writers and on the press row and just like we'd all just look at each other in amazement because he'd just make plays that you couldn't describe in, in words and you could, didn't even really know how to talk about. So that part is definitely going to be missed because like you just never knew what he was going to do on the ice. So it was always fun when he had the puck. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely a special player. And and Dan, I know you said he's going to be playing overseas this year, but his long-term goal is still to end up in the NHL with the Islanders, right? This is more just a detour caused by the virus. Yeah, yeah. I imagine that next season, or at the end of his foreign season, he's probably going to sign an AHL contract or something. Like, the Islanders are still high on him and still have his rights. So I I think he'd come back if he can get a pretty good offer to play in the AHL or even in the NHL, if he does really well in Finland, I believe. So, um, yeah, I mean, tough loss for the Huskies and uh, of course, but also thanks to to Ruslan Zakov for his contributions to the program Uh, in his shortened time, uh, still, still was able to accomplish quite a bit. Women's basketball is also going to have a situation um, or or has a situation of uncertainty around international players and whether they may or may not be able to come in. Is that that right? Right. So nothing's set for sure, but it's just been a general concern since this all happened. They have three international players on their roster next year. They have Aaliyah Edwards from Canada, who I think is less of an issue with this whole thing because – it seems like by the time she'll need to come into the U S the restrictions on international travel to Canada are going to be lessened. So I'm not overly concerned about her, but the main concerns are Anna Makarad, who's in Poland and then Nika Mule who's in Croatia. And there's still a ban from travel into Europe, I believe. So getting those two in is going to be a little bit tricky, whether or not the U S is going to open and allow flights from Europe to come in if they're going to stay closed, if there's going to be maybe other methods for those players to get in, like I'm totally speculating here, but maybe if they have to fly into Canada and then they can come into the U S that way, I'm not totally sure, but for what it's worth, Gino was optimistic about it on his last Instagram live about them being able to get into the U S he said, I don't see why not. And I can't imagine he has inside info with the government, but if he's feeling good about it, I think, most people should feel good about it. I mean, they're not the only two international college students that are going to be trying to get into the U.S., let alone athletes. So I imagine a solution will be figured out to let those people come in because it's just going to be a huge amount of the population in college and a huge revenue source for these colleges if they're not allowed to come in. So I think colleges are going to push hard to let at least students in and maybe have a system where if you have a work visa or a student visa, you'll be able to get in regardless of where you're from. 
Yeah, Dan, I think Edwards, like you said, is a, is a lock. I think the relations between the U.S. and Canada, they're kind of on the same page, same continent, obviously. So um, that should be, shouldn't be too big of an issue. And for Makara and Mule, uh, I don't think, you know, there's still time for things to happen. So it's not out of the question that they'll be able to get over to, but just unfortunately kind of a wait and see approach. I know you did bring up Gino's Instagram lives. Uh, he's turned into a tech whiz during this quarantine. So what's your experience been like just kind of uh, watching a lot of Gino's Instagram lives? I know I tuned in for his, uh, his chaotic, I think that's the best way to describe it, Instagram live with Jay Wright where Jay Wright was in the chat but couldn't join. Gino couldn't get him to join. The women's basketball SID was texting him and DMing him on Instagram trying to add Jay Wright into the chat. Uh, and it was total chaos, and it was some of the best television that I've seen during this quarantine. So I just wanted your thoughts. Yeah, it's honestly better than the actual show itself, watching Gino attempt to work Instagram, because he's just the classic like old man that doesn't really want to be on the technology. But it's like, we all have those people that are like on Facebook or on Twitter because they want to see what their kids or nieces and nephews or grandchildren are doing. Gino's for the most part, just doing that and using it so that he can do his Instagram lives, but he has absolutely no clue what it's doing. So my favorite part is being ready to go for when he starts going live and waiting for the notification so I can jump in immediately just to see what unfolds in the first like five minutes that he loads it up because half the time the camera's facing like down on the table or it's just like completely facing a wall and you can't see anything or Gino's just mumbling to himself trying to figure out what to do and then once he kind of gets it going getting the person to join the live is a whole different adventure adventure so honestly like the lives are really interesting and provide some good info but in terms of entertainment as you said like the pre-show I guess is the best part speaking of the women's basketball team we did get a little bit of news about uh, what their postseason will look like. Again, now we're in a place where we are assuming there will be a basketball season, but some good news as Connecticut, the great state of Connecticut, will be hosting the Big East Women's Basketball Tournament according to who, Connolly? Who, who let us know this wonderful gem of news? Uh, luckily, the Providence AD, because apparently Providence men's basketball is looking into playing home games at Mohegan Sun if things aren't cleared up in Rhode Island or in Providence. So I asked the Big East about it. They didn't confirm anything. They just said that they're looking at sites. Their contract with DePaul's Arena in Chicago is up and they're interested in Mohegan Sun, but really pretty much since UConn joined the Big East and especially during the AAC tournament this last year, the rumor has been that it's going to stay at Mohegan Sun and really it just makes too much sense to keep it there. You've got a hotel on site, you've got a million places for parents, the players, fans to eat and do in between before after the game. So I, it's just a great place to host a conference tournament and I'm glad it's staying there instead of Hartford just because it may not be essentially located to but it's arguably easier to get to and it's easier to get in and out of traffic isn't as bad and it's just a fun place to go to for three days in the middle of dreary march so i think it's a good decision it it's too easy of it a decision to put it anywhere else besides connecticut because nowhere else are you going to get the draw that you get in connecticut which for some reason rubs people the wrong way but i don't understand why you'd rather have a tournament in 
Fort Worth where 200 people show up instead of Connecticut where you can get a crowd of 6,000, 8,000 strong for most of the games. Yeah, I I think this is a no-brainer as well, Dan. If if you haven't been to the conference tournament in Mohegan Sun, I can't recommend it enough. It, it's a great experience, great atmosphere. Uh, obviously, a lot of things to do in Mohegan Sun. Also, um, like you said, there's going to be a strong showing. And if you know this virus thing does continue to progress into the spring, and uh, it makes a lot of sense to have it there because, like you said, the hotel's right on site. They can do any quarantining uh, or anything they need to do uh, ahead of time to kind of get everybody into one place. So I think it's a good idea. Uh, I love watching games at Mohegan Sun. I think this tournament will be just as good as the uh, the past American tournaments, which I've always had a blast at, whether I was there as a fan or, or as a member of the media. Um, they always do a good job. And yeah, you're right, Dan. It's it's definitely an upgrade over Hartford for a myriad of reasons. Yeah, it is. It has definitely been a tremendously successful event. So uh, great to be seeing that continue. Let's take a quick ad break and then we'll talk a little UConn football. Oh, yeah. And we're back. So we didn't we did not talk too, too much about UConn football in our last podcast, but uh, there have been little snippets of news and action coming from Randy Edsel's squad. First and foremost, that they are doing work on the recruiting trail, uh, recently adding two commitments from three-star recruits, uh, getting players who seem to be uh, otherwise solid, have solid pedigrees, you know, for UConn's recruiting standards. And I think that's that's given – another wave of, of another push for positivity for the program, uh, even in its current state. There have been some additions to the schedule. So they got Temple uh, and Wyoming on, on the books, which uh, Temple, longtime AAC rival Temple, who uh, has, has always been uh, solid, who we did, did get a couple wins off of, but I think a good series for us to have just given the FBS outlook. So recruiting's picking up. They got some scheduling, scheduling stuff going on, but we are not going to have marching bands. That's what's up with UConn football. How are you guys feeling about Husky football here in June? Now, I still don't have a lot of confidence in Randy Etzel, but I have a lot more confidence in Randy Etzel than I did two months ago. They signed back-to-back three-star recruits today, which I can't remember the last time that that happened. Granted, I'm not the recruiting expert here at the UConn blog, but um, you know, it's it's been a while since that's happened, at least as far as I can remember. Uh, but they have this right now is a top 70 recruiting class. It's better than Vanderbilt, Memphis, Arizona State, Stanford, UCF, uh, and a few others. And that's nothing to sneeze at. And I think there's a direct correlation uh, to going independent there as well. But it's not all about recruiting rankings. And part of Etzel's whole shtick is that he can, you know, turn water into wine and take lower recruited players and make them into stars like we, we've seen with Donald Brown or even Dan Orlovsky to a degree. And so we'll have to see what happens. But the recruiting stuff does mean something. And I think the fact that UConn is in the top, almost in the top half instead of in the bottom third, uh, is a big deal. Yeah, and, and, you know, to his credit, kind of this whole time, Edsel's recruiting has been solid, I, I would say. Um, and uh, on top of that, yeah, to, to notice that it's improving as structural things around the program improve, also a good sign as well. I think you guys mentioned um, independence 
and, and no bowl tie, but specifically just having that schedule set for the next few years is obviously something that you recruit off of and a good set of games that are mostly, you know, in this part of the country, I think is also something that that plays well with recruits. And, and yeah, I mean, I think we, we should never be judging the background of, of a recruit. There are so many gems. There are so many three stars who do nothing. There are so many zero stars who do uh, a lot. And especially, and, and this is our, I think, I feel like it's our annual recruiting conversation or, or, or at least semi-regular, but um, you know, just at the level of recruit that UConn is going after, yeah, those recruiting sites are not putting a ton of time into um, a ton of time into figuring out the the intricacies of if this kid is a high two or a low three. Um, so be- best to just kind of see how they end up in a few years, and and I think you can you can definitely evaluate the school lists too, but schools cut down people for really arbitrary reasons as well. Um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the power five schools or, or even just really good G five schools, they can, they can just do cuts off of their list based on, you know, height, weight, and 40 time. And, and as a result, be missing out on tons and tons of guys. So even offer list is not necessarily, you know, if you look at just to, to look at the UConn roster, Matt Pert, for example, his, you know, I remember doing the recruiting, the like commitment article about him. It's like, there's no info about this guy from a small prep school in Massachusetts. All of that to say, uh, you know, any of, any of the recruiting news, we should, the UConn fans online should not be judging some kid as, as uh, indicative of where the program is because he doesn't have enough offers to satisfy you, you know, in terms of making you feel good about his decision. Uh, so I would always caution people to be too judgmental about a recruit's background. How do we feel about no band? I'm bummed. I love the marching band. I think especially at the football games, I think that's like part of the, you know, college football experience. Right. And, uh, Luke wrote the article, Luke Swanson, one of the other writers wrote the article and kind of touched on this, like that, that's part of the atmosphere. That's part of why people prefer, I mean, there's plenty of other reasons, but there's that's part of the reason why people prefer going to college games instead of going to NFL. Uh, some people do anyways. And uh, it's definitely going to be very different without them there. I'm sure there will be like a recording or something that they'll pipe in uh, to, to kind of simulate that to some degree. But, you know, that was part of the halftime show. Every, every home game, they, you know, we're playing third downs, first downs, all that good stuff. And I, I think they added a lot and it also sucks that they're not going to be on uh, playing at any fall sporting events for 2020 so basketball or hockey they won't be involved um spring spring semester could be a different story but not having them for football or any of the other sports is a real bummer and it would have been really fun to have the band blaring for the first time that UConn gets back for conference play in the big east for basketball uh, in front of a sold out gamble or xl center or something like that that would have been a really cool thing to kind of be a part of and make make everyone feel a little nostalgic but it is probably the safest thing to do i think they i saw somewhere that singing playing music like with wind instruments is one of the worst things to do to like spread the virus so if that is the case then the marching band densely packed together is a really bad idea so 
good on UConn for taking the right steps, but it does suck that this is the first time that UConn football won't have the band there for the, for the first time in like 125 years or something. So definitely a bummer, but definitely the right decision. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought at first I was like, how bad could it be? Is this really about like, like you said, is this really about how woodwinds are bad for the spread of germs? And turns out, yes, it is really all about, brass instruments and anything where you're blowing that's basically just a germ cannon so uh completely makes sense that that they might not want to have those in a stadium where they hope to have paying fans at, at some point right and that eats they eat into the capacity too not not that they're dead weight obviously i think they bring a lot to the experience but if you can only operate at 30 percent or 25 percent capacity having 200 or 120 band members in Rentschler, at Rentschler Field is going to be a problem. So it makes sense for a multitude of reasons, but it's a bummer. I'm a big fan of the uh, the marching band. Yeah, UConn band is, they're fantastic. Right of Connecticut. Does anyone else even in the Northeast have like a decent band? I don't, I don't, I don't remember much about other schools, but bands, unless, you know, some, some like schools outside of the area do, but are there yeah. any others? I went to so I went to the Yukon Villanova basketball game at Wells Fargo last year. Great experience. Hoping to make it back at some point. Villanova band was pretty good. There was a, another good band from a local team. It was like Robert Morris or something like that for the they came to gamble for the women's tournament a few years ago. They were pretty solid. Um but yeah, it, it is a dime a dozen especially for like a big big state school uh like Yukon. But I think they're def, usually regarded as one of the one of the top ones in the Northeast. Yeah. The BU hockey band. Absolutely fire. One of the best. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're good. Like sometimes it can be a little hit or miss with hockey bands, but like BU absolutely crushes it. Yeah, that's true. Some of the hockey bands are, are pretty good. I think there's another good one too. Was it Vermont? I was, I was thinking Vermont as well. Maybe UNH too. I I don't remember UNH too much. UNH, UNH has a really good, like loud student section. Yeah, great, great environment for a hockey yeah. game. Yeah, the wit. I agree. I don't even remember band being at the wit. They might not have had one. I, I, I'm, I'm probably completely wrong, but I can't uh, remember one either, though, Connolly. And then there's another hockey school that has a really good one, or another hockey one, but the the school is blanking me. Oh, you know what? I think the UMass band was actually pretty good. Hmm. Their good for student them. section, though, pretty, pretty bad. They were chanting safety school at UConn, which is pretty good. Lots to unpack there. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, it's like you take the line from us and then, so then we can't say it. And then what? Yeah. Right. Oh, I did just see something though. Let me see. It's not necessarily a reputable source here. Let me, let me follow up here. Um, apparently Old Miss intends to have full crowds at all their games and isn't UConn playing at Ole Miss this year? Yep. Is it this year? I believe so. Yeah. All right. <laughs> that is big time. Like, uh, that's good break news on the pod, but yeah. I'm trying to oh, this stupid site, not SB nation is trash. Um, I think a lot of people were, were planning on going to that game anyway. Because yeah, I mean, it's a great okay. environment, right? Yeah, yeah, allegedly. So Ole Miss brought two waves 
two waves of athletes back to campus. There was two positive COVID cases in the first set and zero in the second wave. Um, and they apparently have like a whole plan on how to do this and how to proceed. They, they do have a plan to like have limited capacity uh, if they do need to. So it's season ticket holders, people that give a ton of money to Ole Miss, understandably. And then um, it's like first come, first serve if available. So I don't know if we're, this is going to go into the pot or not, but if UConn fans are interested in going to Ole Miss, they intend on doing the whole thing all the way, which is something. Where, uh, who is reporting that? The Grove report from Sports Illustrated. It, there was a memo sent to season ticket holders and posted on social media Monday afternoon. Let me. Nice. Well, yeah, that is good. I mean, hey, UConn's got a fun schedule, folks. Football. We love it. We're going to take a quick ad break and then return with an interview with former UConn football player, John Robinson. All right. We are thrilled to have a really special interview here for this week's episode of the podcast. And that is John Robinson. He is a former UConn football player who finished his career at Tennessee State. Uh, he's currently working his way uh, into sports media as, as an aspiring uh, media professional. So I thought it'd be great to chat with John about his time at UConn, uh, what's going on right now, how the sports world is reacting, uh, and, and a little bit more. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Well, so to start, you know, you you joined UConn as part of the um, recruiting class of 2015 under Bob Diaco. Right. Um, you want to just, rem uh, you know, let's take us back to that time. Um, you know, what what was it that attracted you to to UConn and and made you make that decision to to commit to UConn? Um. So for me, I was actually kind of a late bloomer in high school. Um, I probably didn't start getting like my scholarship offers till the end of my junior year going into my senior year. Um, I think what made me commit to UConn is that I think at the time, um, I knew that I wanted to go to a place that wasn't too far from home because I wanted my family to be able to come see me play. I thought that was one of the big factors in my recruitment is kind of staying in the area in which my family can definitely be in the driving distance to come see me, but not too close where they got to come see me every day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I just think for me, when I met Bob Iaco at the time, you know, he was just coming off that year with Manti Teo and that Notre Dame defense. Um, you know, I would probably say, like, at an early age, I was a sports, like, junkie. Um, I feel like a lot of kids in my my age and early like we watched football but you know i i was dove into everything like i was i felt like i was an expert when it came to football even even like in my younger years and i kind of just saw the potential in which bob Yako could bring to my career as a defensive player and um, i think i just thought the promise was bright for what the what uconn could have been under his uh under his lead. And, you know, Bob Diaco has a way with words. You know, he's a, he's a charming man, you know what I'm saying? He, he knows how to inspire and kind of give you like that run through a wall mentality. And I just felt really comfortable with 
him as my head coach compared to some of the other schools that recruited me. Mm-hmm. I think, too, one of the big things about it was Coach Poindexter, Coach Reardon, Coach Walhalls, and they heavily recruited me. They kind of, like, stayed on my back. I think UConn saw a lot of potential in me early that I probably didn't see myself, and I think I kind of resonated to that. Even after I committed to UConn, I still was getting other scholarship offers from other schools. I actually almost considered decommitting to go to Syracuse a week after I took my official, but I had made such strong relationships with my class that I was committed to UConn with. Um, You know, Aaron Garland was, you know, we were committed for like almost a year together. And in that year, me and him made such a a strong relationship. And it was just like relations like that made it really hard for me to um, decommit because I just knew I wanted to play with some of these guys. You know what I'm saying? I think my class, my recruiting class was real tight knit. And and that was just what I wanted to be a part of. And that's kind of what led me to just decide to uh, stick with my commitment and go to UConn. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I think we we discussed this previously, but you know, the the I'd covered that that 2015 uh, class pretty closely, and something that stood out to me about that group, which you know, I think is something that you're alluding to as well, is uh, it did seem like you know a really high character group of guys. Um, yeah. Not that you know, not that any other school is is ignoring character or anything like that, um, but you know, what, what were some things that stood out to you just in terms of, of that group of people? You know, I mean, turns out like there's, there's now Tyler Davis got an NFL draft pick in there. Some guys who ended yeah. up transferring uh, you, you yourself ended up transferring. Um, so, you know, obviously everyone's journey differs greatly. Um, right. but, but what stood out to you about that group? as you know, you know, as you first got to know them and um, you know, maybe even just as you first, got onto campus for the first time together, you know, that first year. Well, shout out to Tyler Davis, one. I would say Tyler Davis is one of the reasons the class of 2015 happened. Um, I think he was one of, like, the biggest recruiters for UConn Mm -hmm. when when he signed. Because he was, I think, he was the first commit, him and Kevin Murphy. Yeah. And um, Tyler was just very heavy in, you know, some of UConn's key targets, myself included, and just – you know, telling him about the school, talking about he would love to play with us. Um, that was that he was big too in like the recruiting process. I think anybody who in that class who committed uh, before signing day could say they knew Tyler Davis and actually already had a relationship with him. I think he definitely made himself know. But overall, I think the one thing about my class that I liked um, the most, to be honest, was diversity of the class. I think. My class, there were so many people from so many different walks of life. Um, you know, we had players like Herji Mayala and Phil Oakenham who were from Canada, yeah. played for Montreal at that. Don't even, you know, both of them guys, both of those guys know two languages, very well-versed guys. Um, then you got guys like Connor Freeborn, Kevin Murphy, myself. Uh, you got Naz Reed. I mean, Naz Williams. Um you know, and then you got your Connecticut guys like Brian Cespedes, uh, Jack Dexter, Dallas Parker, like a lot of guys that left. There were some really good guys that left UConn. Um, and I think that class of 2015, though a lot of people, a lot of people from that class didn't finish their career at UConn. It's a lot of good people in the group. 
<clears throat> I think the one thing about my class that I really enjoyed most was the class of 2015 was we were really tight knit. I think that's the best way to say it. Like we were all friends. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a Facebook group chat very early. So we all kind of knew each other before we had signed, before we even got to our official. Mm-hmm. Um, every time somebody committed, they were thrown in that Facebook group chat. Like I was, I felt like we were kind of like friends before we even became teammates at UConn because we kind of were so heavily um, together. And then when we got to school, we were with each other all the time. I think one of the cool things was our freshman year, they put us in um, Hale dorms and Hale was um, right on the hill in UConn. And it's, it's literally like a one apartment building. It's cramped, but all the freshmen are in there. All the athletes are in there. Yeah. And you kind of forced to like like each other because you're in this little this little apartment building all day. None of us can drive around campus, so if we're not at practice or at a class, like we're in this building usually. And we're in the building with like the soccer team, women's basketball, um, some track. Like it was a smorgasbord of all freshman athletes yeah. in this dorm, and I think that's one of the things that also made us really close because. You know, we're having movie nights inside the um, inside the dorm. We hung out a lot in the common area. Like, I think overall, my class was just very. We were very like family. Like, I would definitely say like we were family. Like, I even talked to a lot of my old teammates. Like to this day, I actually just spoke to Dallas Parker and Aaron Garland yesterday. You know what I'm saying? Like, I constantly still communicate with a lot of my teammates, and like those friendships will never go away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. Um, and yeah, it's, it's good that, that no one can take that, that part away from you and, and you do have lifelong connections. Um, thinking about that, your time, your time at UConn um, and just kind of like life on campus as a student athlete, um, what are kind of the things that, that you think um, go overlooked or that people don't really fully understand about that experience? Um, I think one of the biggest things is like, if you play football or basketball, I think what from the outside looking in you don't see is like the amount of time and effort that goes into being a part of one of these programs. I think one of the failures that people misconstrued or don't understand is we, at the end of the day, we came to the universities to play a sport. Like, I know we're there to get an education, but we came to play a sport. So at the end of the day, that's our first priority. Um, yes, education is important, and I'm not saying it's not. However, a lot of your time, effort, mental, spirit, physical goes in to the sport that you have a scholarship or that you came to that university to play. Um, another thing is, I think that people believe that when you were an athlete, you know, nothing bothered us. We got everything easy. And that probably gets on my nerves the most because I know a lot of people could not be so glued to one program every day during your college experience. There's a lot of things we don't actually experience that most college kids go through just because we don't have the time for it, you know, or we have to really decide business versus pleasure in terms of either do you want, you know, you have practice in the morning, you can't go to this, or, you know, you got to work out at this time the next day, like you you shouldn't be um, hanging out this long or 
there's no thirsty Thursday, you know, you're not going to this day party. Like at the end of the day, as an athlete, those are things you're, and then as an athlete, you have to miss those things. But as a kid in college, you want to be able to experience those things and you can't because you have other responsibilities. And you only get about maybe at the after spring ball ends or right after the season ends, you get like the end of every semester for like maybe three weeks max to be like a regular student. And I think that's one thing people just don't see. Also, athletes struggle with like their mental health all the time in college. And I think that goes overlooked 100%. Mm-hmm. I do feel like in more programs, they need to start bringing in um, sports therapists to come in and address that for these student athletes. Because I've seen a lot of my teammates and at both universities struggle with their mental health, myself included, just because of the stress of playing, being a college athlete. Yeah. And you have to understand for some people who, their college career is not turning out the way they had dreamed of it when they committed to the school, they're probably going through something in their head that they're just really not talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, you invested in a program. You go to a, when you commit to a university, you, you're assuming you're going to graduate from there, you're going to get your degree, you're going to play, you're going to start, um, you know, you're going to leave there and potentially play in the NFL. Like that's most people's goals when they accept the scholarship to play division one for a sport. Like that's your, your thought process. That doesn't always happen. Obviously, it didn't happen for me. It obviously didn't happen for nine, 98% of my class, actually. If you really look at it, only a few people from my actual class 2015 are on NFL rosters right now. Uh, Matt Pert and Tyler Davis. That's about it. Um, that's two. And I think that my class was over 20 plus. A class, recruiting class was over 20 plus. So only two people made it. So for all those that don't, you know, they battle things that most people don't realize that we go through. Like, I hate the old idea that being an athlete, like, we just got it made. Because that's just not true. Mm -hmm. Nobody sees the behind the scenes with some of the coaching. You don't see the amount of work that's put in. Like, nothing is easy or we don't, nothing is just made about it. You still got to go and compete. You still have to come every day and have the same energy. Um, and then when you're on a losing program, the culture in the locker room is losing. So the energy sometimes feels off. Like I remember there was a lot of times that I was walking to, um, I was walking to the Burton family complex, just like, here we go again. You know what I'm saying? Like we're about to prepare dumb hard for this whole week just to lose by 30. Like that becomes that in itself becomes draining. You don't want to keep playing the game you love and lose, you know what I'm saying, yeah. all the time. It, it that in it losing is draining. You know, it's not fun losing. You're doing all these sacrifices and spending all this time for a program to lose games, it sucks. Like it's a lot easier to go through some of these stresses when you're in a program that you're winning games. It it feels more worth it, you know, yeah. when when you're when you're doing all this work to lose, it's like, God damn, like I'm putting all this work in and we still can't seem to get it right. So that that's hard as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think the mental health part is, is so important. And um, 
I can just say from from work that I do, you know, pe people in the workplace are are thinking about this uh, aspect of life a little bit more, and especially with all sorts of recent events, including the the pandemic and 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 then protests across the country. I think a lot of organizations are starting to think about, you know, what are those things that that hit people and and start to affect them. Mm -hmm. um, I know that you, you know, you are in touch with so many different people. You're, you know, a lot of people who played division one football at a variety of schools. Right. Um, I guess, do you, do you know folks who feel like, you know, they, they do have a school that supported them in a good way around some of those yeah. things that might not be sports? Yeah, I do actually. Um, that's the thing. Like I will say that, not all universities are like my experience. Um, for example, I have a friend, his name is Brandon Wimbush. Um, I, you probably, if you know college football, you know who he is. He played at Notre Dame. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, me and him are actually really close in terms of like our football career. Like we played the same 707 team. Obviously we both played football in North Jersey. So pretty much anybody who was a division one prospect out of the North Jersey, like we all just kind of knew each other and we have either played at each other or participate in a visitor camp. So we all knew each other. Um, and Brandon Wimbush talks about Notre Dame all the time because obviously he had to go through the mental um, turmoil of you know, being benched for Ian Book and having to sit and then come in during games and actually lead Notre Dame to victories. But the one thing he always talks about about his experience when I talk about Notre Dame is how well they set him up for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. um, he, you know, so I know that for a lot of players, their university means a lot to them. Like I have my, another friend, his name is Billy Ray Mitchell. He played at um, played at Virginia Tech, and he actually had to medically disqualify himself due to um, a bad back. But even though he medically disqualified himself, the school took so much care of him. And I feel like that's the due diligence these university and athletic programs have to these athletes. Um, you know, now he has the the uh, university the university sponsored podcast for Virginia Tech you know what I'm saying like mm -hmm. universities give you the resources to do things outside of um outside of just the realm of football for a lot of people and I feel like even if something doesn't work out like you don't always you're not the starter you don't have the the record-breaking or record-shattering career that you thought you'd have at the university, people still know who you are and help you seize opportunities and help give you lanes in order to succeed in life. Because one of the biggest things with athletes, and I think, honestly, this is something that's more, more relatable to, um, I don't want to say just Black uh, athletes, but athletes who come from impoverished neighborhoods and different quality of lives that most players are not accustomed to, they grow up in, in environments where their sport is everything. They're always told, like, you're going to the league, you're going to get us out of here. Like, they are set to be the savior of their hood or community. Mm -hmm. And when they realize, you know, only a small percentage of people actually make it, they don't really know what's next. And I think that's so bad because you, the university, the coaches, the people who work within the staff are supposed to help. I think 
it is also their responsibility to make sure that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. If you're if you really care about the sake of of growing young men and women, it's not just about how they perform in their respective sport. It's about making sure that when they leave your university or they have a degree, they have the tools and resources in order to have interests and seek ventures and other things and not be so just my life has to be in my sport. I think mm-hmm. that's one of the things that a lot of universities don't make a point of emphasis. And even though they talk about they do to your parents or when you're sitting down in the recruiting visit, that's just not always the case. They just want you to be eligible and be able to play. Yeah. Um, and that statement, this is coming, not just coming from my experience at UConn, but my experience also at Tennessee State. Like that, that, that's not just speaking from, that's speaking from just my whole college perspective and experience. Um, like for me getting into sports media, like I got here on my own. You know what I'm saying? Like no, yeah. nobody really at my university or my coaches helped me get here. No professor, nobody in my, um, academic counseling um who any of my academic counselors helped me get to this point like this is a lane that I sought after myself and I was I'm lucky because not everybody does this you know what I'm saying not all athletes have not even say have the ability but are able to realize what they want to do outside of this outside of their sport yeah before they're actually done playing mm-hmm yeah, no, absolutely. I, um, there's there's a professor who used to be at UConn, um, Dr. Cooper, who mm-hmm. writes a lot about, uh, who does a lot of research about, um, it's it's almost like an identity crisis because you attach exactly so what yourself is. to the sport, and yep. um, you know it's 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 where you assign all you know all of your value to yourself, and then um, if you don't have it, then then what happens? Um, right. And he actually went through the same thing himself, uh, but ended up, uh, he was at, he went to UNC thinking he'd, he'd play basketball and, and ended yeah. up, you know, being, becoming a professor. Uh, so yeah, the path, the paths are there. And I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's definitely uh, great that you found something, you know, that you want to do outside of sports. Um, I'd love to hear about, you know, your decision. You, 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 you ended up in, like you said, you don't have the, the um, career arc or experience that you think you're going to. Um, and so you end up, uh, you ended up transferring, uh, which mm-hmm. is something that um, a lot of, a lot of, you know, it happens to about half of, of students uh, a- as it is. Um, but could you just kind of go through the, you know, the process of starting to think, okay, I might need to find a, a different place that's a better fit for me. Um, you know, of course, there's a coaching change, which which I'm sure impacted it. Um, and and again, that's something that's really common too, right? You you uh, right. college football, you commit to a coach, and and he does not finish your career there. Um, that's yeah, you know, that's that's really really common. Um, so, but could you just share kind of what the circumstances and and um, you know how you ended up finding a new school to go to? Uh, for me, um, I. I was already kind of thinking I'd probably end up transferring out of UConn just because um, I just felt like when 
spring and summer came around really when the summer when the summer came around to be honest that's when i really started to figure i might transfer um you could just kind of see that when the new co- i'm not i'm not i'm not about to sugarcoat it when the new uh coaching staff came in you can honestly see that they were trying to obviously recruit some of I guess what I'm trying to say is a lot of their new players, they wanted them to be the new guys and you can see it. And I think one of the things about it was like a lot of guys, a lot of guys were moved on the depth chart without actually um, feeling like they deserve to be moved. And people were getting opportunities and they didn't really actually like work for them. They were just kind of thrown in the position. So you could see that, it was kind of like an out with the old and with the new. And, you know, for yeah, when you say it now, like it comes off as like, you know, I'm I'm being like uh, a brat or feeling like I'm entitled. But then you can see in post-game meetings that literally it was stated by the, the head man in charge that, you know, the players we have were not well. They need to, we need to recruit better and we need new players. Like that was literally said. So me having this thinking is not, uh, it's not really so much a, of a, of a hypothesis or, a, you know, a guess, like this is really what happened. Um, I think once I got to the spring and the summer, when I got from spring to the summer and as we were going through, I got hurt. I hurt my knee. Um, but I knew like I couldn't get hurt because I, I knew that like, if I didn't make a statement during camp, I definitely wasn't going to make the, the depth chart or be on the two deep. And I was like, I didn't want that to happen, like, really, really bad. I remember we had a scrimmage. I probably hurt my knee, like, two days, like, 48 hours before the scrimmage. My knee was probably not ready to go. But with a bad knee and all, braced up heavy, I dragged my knee into that scrimmage just to try to do something because that's how bad I just wanted to play. And obviously it didn't work out that way. I didn't start the season. I, I, was, I was unhealthy to start the season anyway. So I didn't play much. And then when I finally got healthy, I played uh, against Tulsa and Temple. Actually, and um, after that, I got my DUI versus uh, after the Tulsa game that night. And when I got that DUI, I kind of, I kind of just knew that. I just knew that once I got that DUI, my career there just wouldn't be the same. I knew when I walked into that locker room, I wouldn't have the same type of response from my coaches. Um, you know, I had a coach literally embarrass me in front of the my whole defense before Coach Edsel embarrassed me in front of everybody. So it was like I already was just like in a bad place. And um, I think after that situation, my D coordinator kind of shot me all the way down. Uh, I was just kind of done. Um, after the DUI, I already was in a bad place. You know, articles came out about me and I was like in a, a bad spotlight and that's never happened to me before in my entire life. I've never been in a situation like that. So for a young kid, for a kid that's 19 turning 20, it, it was just a hard experience for me to go through because I always been a good kid. I never got in trouble. Um, it was like one of those first moments in my life where like, every single thing felt out of my control football my life um 
my response, my, my how I'm looked at by other people. And I just knew when I was going at UConn, I just knew I, I wasn't going to be looked at the same way. Coach Edsel wasn't going to look at me the same way. Coach Crocker wasn't going to look at me the same way. Yeah. Kind of felt like I had like that uh, people, I felt like I was kind of looked at as like that bad seed. Like I'm the reason, you know, when they, when coaches try to make, re, re-innovate a program, they try to take out like some of the bad eggs and, you know, wipe out like the, uh, I guess the cancers of the team. And I knew I wasn't legitimately a cancer to the team, but I felt like I was because of that one mistake. And the way I felt by like my coaches and stuff is that I really still felt that way. And and I and not all my coaches made me feel like shout out to Corey Etzel. Um Corey was a, like a big brother to me for real. Um maybe because he coached my cousin Juwan Winfrey at Colorado, but Coach Edsel was one of those coaches who really checked in on my mental space, how I was doing um, from that new staff. He was probably the one person from that new staff that I, I felt like actually had my best interests at heart. Mm-hmm. So I do appreciate him because even in my decision to leave, he still checked in on me, che- still checks on me to this day. And, you know, he was a big mentor for me while I was out there and kind of helping me navigate that hard time. Because I really didn't feel like I had anybody uh, that I could really talk to about what I was going through. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. so I felt like I had to transfer out, not because I was forced out, but just because I knew I wasn't, I just knew like UConn wasn't a home for me no more. I knew that I wasn't going to probably play anymore, no matter what I did in the practice. I knew I was kind of, I was like a cast off at the time. And so I just decided to, I just decided to leave. I just knew my best. It wasn't in my best interest for my football career, at least, to stay at UConn. Mm-hmm. Well, th- thank you for sharing that. I know it's um, you know a lot of a lot of moving pieces, and I'm sure some uh, you know painful memories to to kind of bring up. So, um, uh, no worries. It's yeah. okay. You know, it's okay. Like those things. I'm not gonna lie, man. Those things. Those things not happening. Like those things don't happen. I don't become the person I am now. I don't fall in love with sports media and, you know, I don't, I don't do some of the things I'm doing now. So I look at those things as like, those were building blocks into me becoming the man I'm becoming. So I don't, I don't regret anything. Well, that's, yeah, no, that's, that's great to hear. And, um, you know, and I, and I think the, the most important thing that, that, uh, you know, is that this is not an uncommon experience. You know, what 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 happened with you has happened with players on the UConn basketball team, other guys on the football team. You know, mm-hmm. it happens on the soccer team. It happens on the soccer team 3,000 miles away at UCLA, you know, also. Yeah. So it's, um, right. you know, I, I, I think it's great to just be honest about your 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 story and what happened yeah. and and hopefully over time, you know, fans and people who follow just start to have a little bit more empathy for, you know, a young, a young, young person in school who makes one, one small mistake or a person in school who, who doesn't even make a mistake, but just doesn't fit on their team and then ends up needing yeah. to leave, um, you know. And I, I feel definitely bad for like the players that feel like they're cast away who actually like, you know, at least I got, in tr- I got in trouble. So it's like, there was like that me getting in trouble was like could be the easy scapegoat mm-hmm. for some players. Like they don't have, like they didn't get in trouble. There is no scapegoat. Like they just kind of pushed away. 
and the one thing I do hate, and I and I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but like, no, no. you know, just from like I noticed from like UConn fans. I'm not really trying to call no fans out, but this, these are they're the ones that I noticed this from because they they follow me and I follow some of them, so I see what they tweet. Like, I don't think it's right when they talk about getting rid of student athletes that are on the team. Like, we need better recruits, transfer them out, get them out of here. Like, this kid, these kids are still have an education at the university. Like, we're not professional athletes. Yeah. We're not on a scholarship. You can't just trade us. You can't cut us. Like, yeah. we're here because we still are students at this university. Like, we are playing for our university or our college. Like, that's why that sometimes it kills me sometimes when I see those things because it's like, or you to just say, like, get this kid and get him out of here. Like, how far along is he with his degree? Yeah. You've only been here two years. Like, you really, all you care about, like, you don't actually care about his success as a student athlete. You just care about his performance or his or hers performance. You don't actually care about their overall well-being. I think that's, that actually frustrates me so much. Like, I hate, um, I hate that. Like, I just think that it's, yeah. it's you're not a real fan to the students, like, if you are telling them to leave the university, I think that is just horrible. Yeah, one of the things that I always say to people and that, that we don't do at the UConn blog, you know, we, we pretty much, we don't say a player sucks, you know, or a player yeah. uh, doesn't belong there. Um, and especially it's like, look, this, this person, no matter what, they're getting their college for free, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I didn't, right? Like, <laughs> right. Um, you, you, Mr. Person on being loud on Twitter, you probably didn't either. Right. Um, so uh, even, uh, even if they are not, um, you know, elite by your standards, they've still been good enough to earn a free college education, which is really, really tremendous. So um, it, it, the language you use, I think, is, is what really is so important. And, um, you know, that's why I think it's, it's great that someone like you is interested in pursuing sports media because there simply are, are not voices that are as, um, uh, accommodating or acknowledging of, of the student athlete experience. Uh, you know, so I think someone like you would be good to balance out, uh, some of the rest of what's out there. Nah, no doubt. I feel that for sure. Um, so, I mean, you know, let's talk about what's going on right now in the world. I mean, um, and, and how it impacts and how it touches on college sports too. It's, it's, you know, uh, this, the issue of racial equality is one that, that plays out in, I think, you know, very stark, um, and, and important ways in the world of college sports. Um, but, you know, there's, there's, protests going on around the country more people than ever seem to be bought in on the need to make take action uh in the interest of of racial equality um as someone in sports media how or yeah someone someone in, you know with your experience and now you know aspiring to into sports media um have you felt a different tone in the way that this is being covered by those in sports and what does it mean to you to be able to see, you know, like UConn uh, and even UConn players making statements, uh, you know, during these past two weeks uh, that maybe they weren't making before. Um, I think it's a good thing for me, honestly, 
you know, in sports, especially in American sports, like basketball and football are the most popular. Those sports are mainly uh, black athletes. So obviously, I feel like it is their duty to speak just because they have the biggest platforms and they're black men and women. Um, like, I love what the WNBA has done over the years. I love what the NBA has done. And the NFL is finally starting to do what they have to do. I do think they owe Colin Kaepernick an apology as well. Just by the way, they're now being so uh, big into the BLM movement. Right. But that's what Colin Kaepernick was doing years, like four years, four or five years ago. And, you know, he was blackballed for it. So they owe him. They owe him, I feel like. Like, y'all made him, I casted him out for, for doing what you're doing right now. Um, in terms of, like, the UConn athletes that are coming out, I feel like it's important because any student athlete that's been to UConn that's not white has experienced some form of racism. And I, and I can say that even for myself. Like, UConn is definitely some of my first experiences with white on black racism were at the University of Connecticut. Um, it doesn't make me upset. It doesn't like pain me to talk about, but I love hearing the athletes of the University of Connecticut speak out because I know some of the black athletes have experienced things even at the university. And I think it's important for the athletes who are not black to speak up about these things. Like. I've unfollowed some of my teammates and some of my former classmates who played sports at UConn because of their inability to speak up about the injustices that go on in this world. I do feel it is very important to speak about. Um, and if you don't feel the need to say something, then you're a part of the problem. And I feel as though I can't associate myself with you because um, that just kind of means like you're not you're not strong enough or you're not willing to acknowledge what's going on in the world. And that honestly offends me mm -hmm. as a black man. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And um, but I love it. I think it is so important for everybody to speak. Um, I even had Gabby Williams on my podcast uh, about a week ago, week and a half ago to talk about this stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I think right now what's going on in the world is very, it's a very emotional time, especially for black people because this, We've been going through this for years. Like, let's not forget, like, this isn't something that's just going on. Black people have been going through injustice in this country for 400 plus years. Um, it is not something that is new. I just think now, finally, it is being globally recognized. You know, I've seen places like Tokyo, Japan, and Germany packed out to protest what's going on. And it's encouraging. It's very encouraging because honestly, like racism in America ain't a black problem, it's a white one. And in order for us to combat it, white people, non-black people, Spanish, Indian, Asian, Middle Eastern, they all gotta join the fight and speak up. Because at the end of the day, black people, we've been speaking for ourselves for a long time and you know, we never, we kind of been voiceless. And I feel like now for the first time, our voices is finally being listened to and I just feel like anybody who's black that has a big platform or an athlete who inspires a lot of young black and black minority children, you have to use this time to speak up and be one of the ambassadors and change. And, you know, even myself, like I've been coordinating protests. I've been very deep into my city in, term, in terms of, you know, 
change. I'm trying to affect my community. Um, you know, I've been very in the front lines of the active of activism right now. You know, I feel like helping in the fight against systemic racism is not really like a choice, it's a responsibility. It feels like something I have to be a part of because I am a black man that will one day bear black children and then hopefully one day have black grandchildren. And I don't want them to really grow up in a world where they got to figure out, you know, I don't want to have to grow up in a world where I have to teach my kids how not to be black when dealing with a cop. And that's impossible because they'll be black. You know what I'm saying? Like they'll be profiled just because of how they look. I don't want them to experience that if I could help change some things in order for that not to happen. Um, Like I watched a video of a man having to teach his black son how to deal with a cop and he literally put his neck on the back of his son and put his knee on his back as a teaching lesson. And it broke my heart because it's not something I want to have to teach my son or daughter. It's not something I want to have to go through. And that's something that I'm trying to help fight to change. and I just think it's, it is, as Black people who have platforms, it is your responsibility of, of us all to fight systemic racism and injustice in this country. Absolutely. And, you know, just zooming in a little to the, you know, these students who are in college right now, um, you know, no, knowing what you know about how athletic departments work, um, uh, obviously, so many, so many have offered statements within the past, uh, you know, week or two weeks or so. Um, what do you think are are kind of like the tangible actions that an athletic department can and should take in the interest of walking the walk? You know, after after being able to make statements that, you know. You, you can put words on a, on a, you know, you can put words on a post. Yeah. What are, what are the actions that you think an athletic department should take to be more inclusive, to be more understanding of, of, mm-hmm. you know, the black American experience? Um, first of all, I, I think the one thing you have to do is open up the dialogue. So one thing I've noticed in athletic departments is every time they have all types of speakers and people coming in, um, panels, forums. Well, there needs to be a panel or a speaker or a forum that is widely open to the Black American experience. Um, not only that, hate crimes and racism in the university needs to be zero tolerance. Play, pe- students should be absolutely expelled. I've been to white frat parties in the University of Connecticut where me and my friends were literally kicked at the door, but I've seen my white teammates just walk by us and get in. I've seen other just kids that are not black just be able to walk into a frat party. Sometimes like the racism to me just seems a little blatant. Um, I think it is very important to make people acknowledge the black American experience in college. I feel like there should be probably a class on um, the Black American experience. I feel like that should be legitimately the name of the class, the Black American experience. Um, whether it makes people uncomfortable or not, it needs to be spoke about. People need to be able to share their stories. I think it 
people, uh, the university should allow all students to have pretty much all freedom to protest. If they decide to walk down Gamble with, um, with all with um, posters and the BLM, and they're yelling and chanting and marching, then you have to accept that. You need to let people voice their angers, voice their grievances. You need to make people have a conversation about the black experience. There needs to be a zero tolerance for hate crimes and racism in the university. There's a lot of things that need to be done. Ain't no black box changing something. That's the one thing, like all these coaches at UConn, not all of them, not all of them, but these coaches at UConn that just posting black boxes, you're not, that's not enough. You're not, that's not about to just change the ideals just because you put up a black box because you followed the trend of the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. There is a lot that needs to be done. And um, and yeah, like, that's really it. But I feel like the black experience needs to be more taught. I think we have such an Anglo-Saxon white way of learning American history and about, the, and about America yeah. that people have like this idea that's just not true. I remember I had to explain to a friend a while ago about, listen, like there's things in my life that you're never gonna understand because you're not black, because you're never gonna, you've never been systematically oppressed. So you don't go through things that I go through. Like I had to explain to a friend that you'll never go around a cop and have an instinctual fear for your possible life and an instinctual fear to run away. Like. For some people, they'll see a cop and feel safety. For black people, you see a cop and you think fear, gun, run. Like, it's not, it's just not the same. And people are like, well, if you don't do anything wrong with the police, then blah, blah. that's not true. It's just not true. The reason why they say it's because they've never been racially profiled. Yeah. Um, and on top of that, there's no way that I did anything wrong and should still feel an instinctual, systemic, fear of the police, the people who are supposed to quote unquote protect us. So there's a lot that needs to be, there's a lot that needs to be done if you really plan to uh, walk the walk, I should say. We had some audio difficulties at the end of the conversation, so we'll just wrap it up there. But huge thanks to John for joining us and sharing his perspective here. I hope it gave you guys a window into what student athletes at UConn experience and how we might do a better job of appreciating what they go through on an everyday basis. That's going to be all for the UConn pod. Thank you all for listening.